of teaching from this morning comes from the section of Romans chapter 4, which is, spans from verses 13 to 25, which I'll read now. This is God's word. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, in the presence of God in whom he believed, who, give lives to the, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. My name is Adam Venable, and I am your RUF campus minister over at UAB, um, very near here. And it's great to be with you all this morning. Let me say greetings on behalf of RUF UAB. We're so thankful that um, y'all have been a great part of our mission there at UAB to champion the gospel and word and indeed. And so um, Lisa, my wife, and I, we are continually thankful um, for Red Mountain Church and all the ways that you've supported our mission there. Um, preparing for this passage this week, had a lot of things bouncing around in my mind and of course, as a preacher, you're trying to think of something in your own life that reminds you of the passage that we're looking at. Um, you know, sometimes if you're in Genesis chapter 1, 2, 3, the Garden of Eden, you're thinking about this amazing uh, vacation you went on where you got to see, you know, this lake and these trees. Or if you're doing another Old Testament passage, say a battle from the book of First Kings, uh, maybe you think of some great battle that you've seen in a movie, Braveheart, or, um, I don't know, something violent that you experienced in your own life. And this passage that we're looking at this morning, it really made me think a lot about uh, my life when I was in middle school and in high school. I um, grew up in a family that went to church, and I finished middle school really feeling like a pretty good Christian, a good Christian guy. But it was really in high school that some of that began to become unraveled. I grew up mostly around Huntsville, Alabama. And it was in high school that I began to have doubts. And I began to think things like, am I really a Christian? Do I really believe in Jesus and his crucifixion and the resurrection? Do I really think that's true? And I also thought things like, 
Maybe I do believe. Maybe I am a person of faith. But if I am a person of faith, why has my life turned out like it has? Um, high school is a super fun time for some people. It was not like that for me, at least internally. And so I thought, you know, how can I be a person of faith, um, even though my life has turned out like it has? It's, it's turned out much harder than, than I thought that it would. And if that's you this morning, if, if you've had doubts about your faith, if you sometimes doubt that you're a Christian, or that you even want to be a Christian, or if you sometimes wonder, if I'm a person of faith, why has my life turned out to be so hard? This passage that we're looking at is especially for you, and I hope that it's helpful to you. And I want to really try and unpack this morning the landscape of faith. The landscape of faith. And I want to look at three things about the landscape of faith. It's good news. Faith is good news. It's also realism. Realism. And then finally, it's growing. Realism, uh, excuse me, it's good news, it's realism, and it's growing. All right, so first, faith is good news. This is the basic message of the gospel. This is what Christians talk about. It's good news, right? Well, what are two alternatives to believing that faith is good news? Alternative one and two. And alternative one is just rejecting a life of faith and saying, Yeah, you people over there, you guys who believe, I'm going to reject that, leave all that behind. I'm not going to be a person of faith. Alternative number one. um, Eat, drink, and be merry. Right? That's what what the Old Testament describes that life as. Does that life work? And I'll say that it's much easier to live that life when you're young. When you are healthy and you are well and you've got your whole life ahead of you, it's easier to reject a life of faith. I really think that's true. There are exceptions, but I think as you get older, it becomes increasingly harder to just say, yeah, God, I don't believe in that, and I don't care. The older you get, the harder that becomes. And what you have to do is you have to take your life and divide it in two, and say, over here is my rational side, where I don't believe in God, And then over here is going to be just the way I experience life. And in this uh, side of my life, I have to believe in God. I have to have a purpose or I cannot go on. I have to have a reason for going to work. I have to have a reason for saying that this is good and this is evil. I have to have a reason for wanting to love the people in my life. Now, don't ask me why. I, I can't give you any reason why. And in that sense, it's all irrational. And the older you get... The more that tension grows and grows and this big canyon opens up in your life and you go, this doesn't make sense and you've got to either live in denial of it or you can start to ask, maybe there's more to life than I thought. Alternative number one. What's alternative number two? What's the religion of Alabama in general? Or what's the religion of the Southeast? And I think it's just belief in God in general. Not believing anything particular about God, but just, hey, y'all, I I believe in God, and I pray to God sometimes, and um, I think that God exists, and that he wants me to be a good person, he wants you to be a good person. This is my, this is the thickest southern accent I can come up with. (laughs) Um, I want you to be a good person, and, you know, God wants to help you to become a better you, right? And God's not directly involved in the details of your life. And so that's up to you to sort out. But 
go out there, try to be a good person, avoid these things. God wants you to, to be a better you. Belief in God in general. And that's alternative number two, and is just as much a rejection of this life of faith, this good news of faith, as alternative number one. Because, and you know, lest we think we're above that, right? How do you treat your parents? Is this how you treat your parents? My parents have been nice to me, and therefore I'm going to be nice to them. Or is this how you treat your children? Look, when you're a good boy, you're going to get positive consequences. And when you're a bad boy, you're going to get negative consequences. That is just moralistic belief in God in general, right? That's the alternative to the good news of faith. It is living in terms of law. And that's exactly how um, Paul, in chapter 4 of Romans, describes the alternative to the good news. It is living in terms of, look, you better get it together and you better obey. And when you don't, there's this thing called transgressions. And, when, and when, you, when you transgress, what's left for you? Law. That's what's left for you. And Paul is saying, that won't work. Living by law won't work. Living by belief in God in general won't work. But there's this beautiful alternative of the good news of faith. Why is it good news? This is the language that you see throughout the chapter. It's the righteousness of faith. It's being credited righteous. It's being justified. It's believing in this Jesus who was delivered up for our sins and for our transgressions. What does that mean? It means that someone like me, you know, I'm a, I'm, I'm a trained uh, preacher of the word of God, right? And every um, time I get up here to preach... I'm supposed to, um, to love you, obviously, those I'm speaking to. I'm supposed to love God, right? There wouldn't be any point in getting up here if I didn't. Do I always do that? No, I don't. That means I'm a transgressor. And that means for me, what I deserve is the wrath of God. But the good news of faith is that all the anger and all the wrath that God might have towards me for my sin... He takes all that wrath and he puts it onto Jesus Christ on the cross, delivered up for our sins. And he takes Jesus' perfect record, his perfect status, and he credits it to me so that now I am forgiven of all of my sins. That's the good news of faith. And in this chapter in particular, he uses this analogy of Abraham, right? We have talked uh, about Abraham, it feels like a little bit ad nauseum, right? (laughs) But the Jews loved Abraham, and the Bible wants us to love Abraham. And the big deal about Abraham was he was, the, he was this forefather that the Jews looked to. And if it was true about Abraham, it must be true of us. And the amazing thing about Abraham is that God gave him this inheritance. And back in Genesis, it describes the inheritance as the land of Canaan. But here in this chapter, it says that you will inherit the entire earth, the whole world, Abraham. Why does he say that? Because back in Genesis, God says to Abraham, through you, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. And therefore, Abraham inherits the whole world. And we see that even more clearly. What does Jesus say about the meek? What's going to happen to the meek, Jesus says? They will inherit the earth. The whole earth is yours, the New Testament says. And that's the amazing thing, is that this inheritance is by grace and mercy. It is not 
by law. You can't, you're, you can't obey your way into the inheritance. Um, Joe, who preached, if you were here last week, had this great analogy from college. I could not l- uh, let him one-up me. So I've, I've got another um, illustration from college. When I was at NC State University, I met a guy named Nathan Gatlin. Nathan became my best friend. And I asked Nathan, how did you get into NC State, Nathan? And Nathan said, well, my dad and I were eating at a Waffle House outside of Raleigh, North Carolina. And a man overheard our last name in the Waffle House. And he said, did you know that there is a full scholarship available at NC State in the horticulture department for anyone with the last name Gatlin? And my friend thought, that's what people say in Waffle House. This guy, you know. What does this guy know? You know the people that hang out in Waffle House, right? I'm sorry if you're one of those. I- I've been to Waffle House. But my friend uh, researched it, and sure enough, full scholarship available for anyone in the horticulture department at NC State if your last name was Gatlin because some generous and wealthy donor had one day set up this scholarship that all you needed to get it was to show up and say, I'm here. I've got the right last name. I'm in the family. I'll take my inheritance now, right? And that's the amazing thing about inheritance. If you've got one, is that you didn't have to get a 36 on your ACT to get your inheritance. You didn't have to do well at work to get your inheritance. You didn't have to be a good boy or a good girl. Well, maybe that counts a little bit. But the inheritance is in the family and you just get it. It's yours for free. And that's the good news of faith. It cannot be earned. It is given away like an inheritance. But what's the problem there is that you have to be in the family. And that's the amazing thing that Paul says is that this inheritance, which was for the physical descendants of Abraham. Are you a physical descendant of Abraham? That means, are you Jewish? Probably not. The amazing thing of the good news of faith is that all those who now believe, who put their trust in the seed of Abraham, Jesus Christ, they now enter the family and get the inheritance. You know, it's great that baby Vanderbilt this year, wherever you are, is going to enter into the inheritance of the Vanderbilts. Good for you. Doesn't help me. But the good news of the gospel is that the inheritance, the earth... Is now yours through faith in Jesus. And it's not just the physical world, right? All the power and pleasure and possessions, it can't fix your depression. Even if you had the inheritance of the Vanderbilts, it wouldn't fix your anxiety. It wouldn't give you peace. But what God is offering is peace with Him. Peace with God to be credited righteous. That's the good news of faith. It's also realism. Um, I don't know, at least 15 years ago, Jesse Ventura, he was uh, governor and he had this book out. The title was something like, I Ain't Got Time to Bleed, right? And I remember seeing an interview with him on Larry King and he said something, Larry King who likes to get talk faith every now and then. And in this interview with Jesse Ventura, he says something like, are you a man of faith? And his reaction is, well, no, I ain't got time for that. Christianity is for the weak. 
It's for the psychologically weak. It's for those who want to run away from life. Go and run to religion. Run to Christianity. Run to faith. I don't have time for that. I want to face reality on its own terms. That's what the Jesse Ventura was saying. Is that true? Is a life of faith, is a landscape of faith, is it full of people living in a fantasy world, running away from reality? And in this passage, you see Abraham doing the exact opposite, right? What does Abraham consider about his own life? Does Abraham live in denial of who he really is? No, he does not. He considers himself as good as dead. He was 100 years old. God had promised him children, which he thought, well, this is impossible. His wife was barren. She could not bear children. Did Abraham just sort of run to God in order to not have to think about all that? Well, no. The passage says that he considered it. He lived in reality. And Christianity and, and Christians have always done that. They've always faced the hardest things about life. They've always been able to move towards um, things that are difficult and face them. Christianity is not a way to numb or to cope with all the, the sadness or the, the problems in your life. It's a way to face them for what they truly are instead of running away. Instead of trying to just cope with everything that's hard in your life. Neither is a life of faith self-loathing. Some people think this about Christianity that... Uh, Christians, They're just feeling guilty and bad, and they're just, um, you know, kind of a joy kill all the time. What is the main thrust of this passage? It is that those who believe in this Messiah inherit the earth. Um, I don't know how you would feel about inheriting the earth. That's not a downer to me. That's, that, that, that's, that, that doesn't uh, cause like, me to become depressed thinking about inheriting the whole earth. Well, life of faith is not self-loathing. Self-loathing is self-destruction. And what happens to Abraham is that he's healed. He's made well. He's made whole. A life of faith is realism. What's at the center of the Christian faith? Is it, um, you know, kind of sunshine and rainbows and just good things all the time? The center of the Christian faith is the crucifixion. A man undergoing the worst possible death, experiencing the worst possible pain. And Christians don't run away from that, but they embrace it. A life of faith, it is realism. Jesus moved towards those who who had leprosy, who were sick, who were dead. You see this in the Lord's Supper even. In in a few minutes, we're going to come to the Lord's Supper. Who's allowed to come to the Lord's Supper? Can you come to the Lord's Supper if you're like Abraham and you look at yourself and you say, I feel as good as dead. When I look at my parenting skills, I I just feel like I have nothing. Are you allowed to come to the Lord's Supper if you look at yourself and your life and you feel like there's just deadness there? Jesus says, if you're ready to cast yourself on my mercy, then the Lord's Supper is a place for you. In your sadness, in your anger, and all the the deadness that you're feeling in your own life, a life of faith is for you. Because faith is realism about the world. What kind of people does God credit righteous? 
Does God only credit happy people righteous in his sight? Does God only credit people with um, a lot of energy and are, are ready to go? Does he only credit those kind of people righteous in his sight? No, he credits people like Abraham, who looked at his life and counted his life as good as dead. And he believed in God's promise. And God made him righteous. This morning, if that is you, and you are casting yourself at the mercy of Jesus, you are righteous. There may be nothing in you that makes you feel very spiritual, but God's promise is that you are his child, and the world is yours. Finally, faith is growing. Faith is growing. One uh, pastor that um, I know, and he's also a really good counselor, and um, he was talking about shame, and he defines shame this way. He says that shame is this, should have already mastered everything. Should have already, shouldn't you have already mastered everything? That's shame, toxic shame. And I think sometimes we can read this passage where it says, Abraham didn't ever weaken in faith. Or whatever is not in there. But Abraham um, had no unbelief. Abraham didn't waver. What do you hear when you hear about how strong Abraham's faith was? Because I think sometimes we can hear this. Abraham's faith is so good and that's just not me. I have got to just believe harder. I don't believe like Abraham. I do waver. I've got to believe harder. Or we can think this. You know, good for Abraham. He lived a life of faith. That's why, I, like, I can never really be genuine about being a Christian. I'm not really serious about being a Christian. I mean, it's, clearly it's impossible. Abraham never wavered. I, I, I cannot do that. I can't be like Abraham. My faith wavers. Is that what you think when you read that passage? Did Abraham have perfect faith? Did Abraham's faith never waver, ever? No. Why? Because Abraham wasn't Jesus. Um, it, when we read this passage, it's so easy to do something that, that we would never normally do, and that's to become obsessed with the sign instead of the reality. It's like the Sea Rock City signs all over uh, the southeast. You know, imagine like parking beside the Sea Rock City sign. Kids, we're finally here. Get out of the car. Um, let's have a picnic. Uh, we'll set up the slip and slide. We finally made it to the Sea Rock City sign. The point of the passage is not Abraham or his faith, right? Abraham is not Jesus. Who's the only one whose faith never wavered ever? Jesus Christ. And that, that's really. Um, you see this, I heard one pastor give this analogy. It's the difference between um, faith defined in a textbook and faith defined in a laboratory. You know, you all took chemistry in high school or college. And, of course, when you read about the experiment in the textbook, it's just A plus B equals C. And, okay, fine. It's pretty straightforward. Then you get into the lab. And you start mixing the things together and you get out the Bunsen burner and it doesn't turn out quite like it was supposed to in the textbook. What you have here in Romans 4 is, is faith in all its beauty. 
and all its perfection, even faith the way it would look in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, who the scripture says even trusted God for his own justification. He was delivered up for our justification, but Jesus was justified too. In the passage, it's faith and it's perfection, but in our lives, it looks more like the lab, where things are a little more confusing. It looks more like it did in Abraham's own life when you read the Old Testament. He, he sinned. Abraham wavered. So the point is not the perfection of Abraham's faith, but the power of God's promise. How can I grow in my faith? If I feel lifeless, if I feel like I have no faith, how can I grow in it? And um, this one writer summarized it so good. He's talking about Jesus and he says, There are many reasons why Jesus struggled to believe God's promises to him. He was faced with one setback after another, from the temptations of the devil to the many failings of his own disciples, from the unbelief of his family to the wicked rejection of his ministry by the people and the leaders of Israel, and then to the final humiliation of his death on the cross. We cannot for one minute imagine that Christ's faith was not tested. Jesus had to have faith, and it was hard for him to have faith. Yet in all those circumstances, Jesus could not and did not waver in his firm belief that God would justify him. Jesus was the pioneer of our faith. And he has plenty of it to give away. The faith in Jesus is like this inheritance that he wants to give away to anyone that will come to him. Jesus loves to meet people who feel as good as dead, just like Abraham, and to credit them righteous and to give them faith. Even though they feel like they've got nothing in themselves. How do you know if your faith needs to grow? You know, you, you might be here this morning and think, I, I don't know, I mean, I believe, uh, I don't see what the big deal is. Like, I have faith, I, I, my faith doesn't need to grow. Well... I'll go back to what I said at the beginning. How do you parent your kids? Do you parent them by law? Or is it, is it law within a context of grace? Your parenting is just reward for positive behavior and consequence for negative behavior. You're parenting by law. I would say, man, what, what if your faith could grow? And you, and you, you could begin to, to experience God's grace in your life. To know that... Jesus loves you even when you didn't love him. Like, God was gracious and merciful to you when you were spitting in his face. He moved towards you, not away from you. Um, how do you treat your parents again? you treat your parents according to law or by grace? Um, how do you treat the folks in your community group or, or here at Red Mountain? Is it, well, I, I like you, you seem like a nice person, and so I'm going to move towards you. Oh, oh, you've hurt me, uh, or I don't like it so much, and so I'm going to move away from you. It's just friendship by law. I would say, if that's you, what if God's grace wants to grow your faith so that his mercy and his grace move into your life and begin to change you and grow you to become more like Abraham? What won't work? You know, if you want to grow your faith, what will not work is just trying to believe harder. I don't believe enough, so I'm going to believe more and more and more and more. 
I'm just going to try harder. Been there, done that. It doesn't work. This morning, um, you know, you may not have ever said this out loud, but if you have thought this, Jesus, I doubt that you died for my sins. Heavenly Father, I, I doubt that you have forgiven me for that sin. Heavenly Father, I, I cannot, I don't have the energy to be gracious to anyone because I do not believe you have been gracious with me. If, if that's you this morning, as we close, I would just invite you to pray with me. Like, let's just go to Jesus and pray and ask him to give us more faith. That we might cling to his mercy and his grace more. And I also have to say, like, if you've never believed in Jesus here this morning, like, this is a sermon on justification. Um, we're so glad that you're here. What if this morning, for the very first time, you confessed your sins to God? And you ask Jesus to cleanse you, to give you a new status, so that you might enter into this eternal inheritance to become a spiritual son or daughter of Abraham. If you will do that this morning, God will forgive you and he will justify you right here where you're seated. And so, wherever you are this morning, I would just uh, invite you to pray with me now. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you and we are in awe of your mercy and your grace that you're not like us and you don't treat people the way that they treat you. Heavenly Father, we are weak and so often we do feel empty and like there's deadness inside. Would you draw near to us, Lord Jesus, with your grace and your mercy? Connect us to you, God. We need to be connected to you in order that we might be transformed to live lives like Abraham, full of faith. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.